The Gospel according to Mark. The Gospel according to Mark. Chapter 1, we started our journey in this Gospel last Sunday. We're going to be studying it extensively over the course of this year. And I want to remind us, before we read, beginning in verse 9 this morning, that these are the words of our Creator, of the one who rules heaven and earth, about the person and work of His Son. So with that anticipation in mind, let's begin reading Mark chapter 1, verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels ministering to him. Lord, bless the preaching of your word. My children have chosen at various times to give themselves the task of digging holes in our backyard. Uh, one of the holes they dug is quite large. Uh, it's been used as a a brick pit and a foxhole, and right now it's very effective as a trip hazard, um, patricide by lawnmower accident comes to mind. Um, but let's imagine for a moment that while they were digging furiously with their little plastic shovels back there, that they struck something hard, large, and heavy that had glints of gold, and they didn't do that, so... Don't tweet about it. But they imagine if they did, imagine they would come racing. I can just imagine my boys coming racing in and telling me, we, we've struck gold in our own backyard. Of course, I would be skeptical as, as you would be. But imagine, imagine that the unthinkable happens and we take this lump of glinty rock to a geologist, an assessor who weighs it, assesses it, and indeed, we have found some forgotten gold boulder in our backyard. Imagine the joy and enthusiasm of my nine-year-old as he was to excitedly tell me, it, it is, it was gold. I found gold in the backyard. Imagine how much joy he would have reminding me of that for the rest of my life. Imagine how excited he would be that in his own backyard, forgotten perhaps for ages, overlooked, neglected, dirty at the first sighting of it, underneath was this priceless treasure. Now, Mark wants to tell us that that is precisely the case in our spiritual lives. That is precisely what Mark is wanting to tell us. He wants us to understand that there is a, there is a priceless treasure, we might say, in our own backyard, right in front of us. It's not always easy to discern. Sometimes it is concealed. It's covered by a bit of, of dirty disguise, and yet it is priceless. It is precious to us. One of my favorite quotes about this topic comes from a book, The Precious Things of God, 
by Octavius Winslow, man with the unfortunate first name. Uh, he says this, a felt conviction of the preciousness of the Savior has ever been regarded by enlightened ministers of the gospel as constituting a scriptural and unmistakable evidence, listen to this, of the existence of divine life of the soul. Put it in modern lingo, we would say it all comes down to what do you think about Jesus? As he would continue, the one and simple inquiry upon which the whole matter is made to hinge has been, what is your experience of the worth of the Savior? Is Christ precious to your heart? So let me ask you very personally this morning. I can't make individual eye contact with all of you, but I'm going to try. What is the worth of Jesus Christ to your soul? I'm not asking what you know about him. I'm not asking what test you could pass about Jesus. I'm asking you, what is the worth, the preciousness the treasure of Christ to your soul. Is he gold to you? Is he precious to you? Mark wants to make him so. Mark wants us to see the worth of the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants us to answer that question and to find it increasingly and passionately, yes, he is precious. He wants to make the Son of God precious to us, a treasure to us. He wants to show us the worth of Jesus Christ. If we can imagine this passage and many passages in Mark following, uh, like going to that ge geologist assessor and him saying, let me tell you how valuable he is. And we need to learn from him because he's the expert. And more importantly, God is the expert on the value, the worth of Jesus Christ. We often have him in our own backyard, but we are ignorant at times of his true worth. And so we open up the scriptures and these four verses, for example, to have him tell us, here is the worth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this passage is no exception. Two ways we can see his worth uh, in this little story. And this story is meant to be held together. There's two vignettes, but they are very much connected. And that's why I'm preaching them as one message this morning. First of all, his worth in his baptism and his worth in the wilderness, both designed to get across to us from Mark, is Christ precious to your soul? May he be. Let's look at his worth in baptism. First of all, notice verse nine. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John. Listen, I, I don't, can't sufficiently describe the gold that is in that first sentence. We've just been told from John the Baptist that the one who is coming, Jesus, the Messiah who is coming, Mark tells us from the beginning, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, this is about Jesus, this one who is coming is so mighty that the mighty prophet John is unworthy even to untie his sandals, that he is so holy that he is able to pour out the Holy Spirit on God's people and baptize them in the presence of God. This is the person we are describing, and so when we to verse 9 and we read, that person was baptized by John. We are meant to be shocked by the utter reversal of the roles. Inevitably, the, the superior in this instance is baptizing the spiritually inferior. And yet in this case, in this case, we have the mighty baptizer with the Holy Spirit submitting to be laid down in the water by the one who said he wasn't worthy to touch his sandals. In another gospel, this is made explicit when John the Baptist says to Jesus, I, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? 
Here's the difficulty when we read these gospel stories. If we've been a Christian any length of time, it is as though the gold is concealed under the surface, isn't it? How easy would it be just to read over those lines and, and keep going? To, to keep reading, not, not to see and unearth and assess the value here. Have you considered what it means that the mighty one, God the Son, submitted to baptism by John the Baptist, the unworthy prophet? Have you considered the humiliation, the, the incredible condescension that the one who has no sin entered into a rite designed for sinners to repent? That's what baptism is. And Mark's very careful. You notice that unlike those who were baptized by John earlier, Jesus does not confess his own sins. Did you notice the difference there in verse 9? He was baptized. He does not confess his own sins as they did. Why? Well, because he has no sins to confess, which raises the question, why was Jesus baptized? Well, the only reason or the primary reason it seems to be is he begins now to enter into the path not for his own sins, but for the sins of those he came to save. He begins to walk in this road of humility, identifying with a repenting people, not because he has sins of his own, but because he will lower himself to identify with them. Like all of those in the surrounding area who came to be cleansed, Jesus comes, not because he needs cleansing, but because he will identify with them. The mighty one will be humbled. The baptizer will be baptized. The one who is God the Son will be laid down in the water as a symbol of cleansing. Do you see the gold right below the surface here? There is gold here. In this case, it is gold that God the Father would not allow anyone to miss through the ages, because when Jesus comes up out of the water, he sees the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. So here we have this contrast again. The, the one who, by all physical appearance, just seems to be one of many who came to be cleansed from their sins, is suddenly announced to be none other than the beloved Son of God. Out Jesus comes from the water, and somehow space itself is torn open, and a voice speaks into time and creation. You are my beloved son. Actually, the original Greek is even more emphatic. You are my son, the beloved. You are my son, the beloved. There is this intentional declaration from God. Do you see the glory of this one who just humbled himself identifying with sinners? Do you know who this is? Do you see his value? This is the beloved son. The way the grammar is of the phrase, it is as if God is saying, this is my son who has always been my beloved. And in this moment, I want to declare that with him, I am well pleased. I am well pleased. No hint here of Jesus being a sinner in need of repentance, but great evidence of him being a savior and a son worthy of our reverence and awe. With you, I am well pleased. Try to imagine this. Imagine John's probably done hundreds of baptisms. But at this moment, out comes Jesus from the water, and, and suddenly heaven itself is torn open. A voice, the voice of God, speaks into creation audibly. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. There is a sight of the Spirit descending like a dove. Commentators argue about why the dove reference. Some say it's a, it's a reminder of the Spirit of God hovering over the waters of creation. And since this is a new creation, it's, it's God declaring, here's the new creation happening in my son. Others say it's a connection to the people of Israel and that the dove was a, a reminder that he was representing Israel. In either case, the emphasis, I don't think, is so much on the symbolism of the dove as it is the fact of the Spirit. The Spirit descends on him like a dove in order to visibly reveal that he is the Messiah. 
the anointed one. That's what Christ means. It means anointed one. And this one isn't anointed by a prophet. He doesn't have someone pour oil over his head like Samuel did of David. No, God himself takes charge of the anointing of his son. He pours not just oil, but the Holy Spirit upon him, declaring him to be the mighty Messiah, the coming one, who is God the Son, the beloved. Now, we're supposed to see in this passage, we are supposed to see the gold contrasted and revealed in his humility. Do you see that? Do you see it? Do you see he is, he is the one baptized from Nazareth? No ordinary uh, uh, place of prominence. No, this, this is an obscure town. Here's, here's this one from Nazareth who is baptized just like any other sinner that day, and yet he is the beloved son anointed by the Spirit. What are we to see? We are to see the preciousness of the serving Savior. We're to feel the worth of the one who identifies with sinners. We're to see the glory that is concealed in his humility. Consider how precious this should make Christ to us. Consider. Consider the worth of God's son. He is the beloved son, the mighty one, the one who deserves more than the service of the greatest earthly prophet, and yet he goes in our place to the baptism of renewal and repentance and restoration. He does not do this for his own sake. He is the beloved. And yet he will take our place. He will take our road. He will submit to the lowest of humiliations in order to fulfill the life of his people for the glory of his father. So is the Christ who was baptized in profound humility, is he precious to Is he precious to you? The Christ that was baptized in your place, is he precious to you? The beloved son of the father submitting to the humiliation of of an act of repentance, is he precious to us? Is he priceless to you? is the one anointed by the Spirit to redeem us, anointed by the affection of our gratefulness. Now listen, we will not be able to value the Son if we value the things that are unlike the Son. We won't be able to value the Son of God if we value the things that are unlike the Son. Let me give you an example. If we value human strength and dignity too highly, we will be blinded to the value of God the Son. Let's not deceive ourselves. We can't train our eyes to prize power and then value the humble Son of God. We cannot boast in our own strength and beauty and then see the beauty of the baptism of Jesus Christ. If you don't see baptism here, it may be because your eyes are trained to look for glory in the wrong places. Perhaps you've trained your eyes to look for glory in royal robes and earthly prominence and physical beauty. And so when he descends into the water, you don't see anything other than a Bible fact rather than a glorious display of divine condescension. From seeing the humility of God the Son? Is anything keeping your voice mute from agreeing with the Father that this is indeed the beloved Son? Is He loved by your soul? Let me speak very specifically to men. Men, do you love Jesus Christ? the humble and serving Savior. Do you love him? I know you know about him. I know you, many of you, believe in him. Do you love him? Surely, if the Father loves the Son as he enters ministry to save sinners, those sinners should love him as well. 
Surely if the Father can declare him the beloved, the ones he came to save should say he is beloved as well. And yet men in particular sometimes find it difficult to say and speak, I love the Lord Jesus. We believe in him. We affirm him. We even follow his teachings. But saying that we love him, Winslow would say it is the preciousness of Christ that is the ultimate revelation of the state of our soul. So let's allow our souls to be assessed. Is he precious to you? Man, let me speak urgently to you. Is he precious to you? Do you love him? Do you adore him? Are you affectionate towards him? Is there a false view of godly dignity that holds back the expression of emotional affection towards the Son of God? Listen, if God the Father can call him the beloved, surely sinners should be able to call him that too. If you're too dignified for God... You are too dignified to be a Christian. And if God the Father can speak into the world, this is my beloved son, then yes, that cry should be reflected in every heart. And if I may say, in many cases, men, ladies outpace us in this expression of affection. If you are falling short in declaring you, you, baptized one, Precious to me. Let me urge you. Lay down that false view of dignity and take up the godly affection you were meant to reflect. Is he precious to you? He must be. He must be precious. The beloved and humble one who came to walk in our place, he must be precious to us. And yet, his service, his lowliness, his, his preciousness did not stop at his baptism. No. He would go much lower still. Much lower still. Consider his worth in the wilderness. Notice the word immediately in verse 12. Look down at your Bibles. Mark is going to use this word over and over and over and over again in this gospel. Immediately, immediately, immediately. It's as if Mark wants us to be very clear. Jesus is on a mission. He will not delay. He will not wait. He will not stop. He will accomplish what the Father has sent him to do. He wants to accent this sense of action and purpose in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this case, the purpose of the Holy Spirit who just anointed him in sending him immediately to a surprising place. Could there be a greater contrast than verse 11 and verse 12? Now, this is one of those moments that I really wish that there weren't this, this kind of inserted Bible heading here because you missed the connection. If you just can try to imagine the temptation of Jesus heading moved out of there that's not inspired and those sentences just flow together. A voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well, well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. We're meant to see the, the shock of that contrast. What happens to the beloved and pleasing son? He is driven out into the wilderness. What happens to the one that God himself opens heaven to proclaim him as his beloved? He is driven out, away, exiled into the wilderness. What happens to the anointed one? Well, the spirit who anoints him sends him immediately on a mission into exile. What happens to the beloved one? He is sent away. We're meant to see the contrast. His worth in the wilderness is revealed by the immediacy of it because the exile, listen to this, the exile is not a contradiction to his mission, but it will be the essence of it. What it means for Jesus to be the faithful and pleasing son is to be in the wilderness. What it means for him to please and obey his father is to be driven away from his father. As with his baptism, Jesus will have to walk in the place of mankind. He will have to do battle with the very enemy of God himself, Satan. He will be tempted as every man and woman and child has been. And at the very outset of his ministry, this conflict with Satan is made abundantly clear. This theme of exile is made abundantly clear. Notice this. He was driven out into the wilderness. 
driven out, it says. It reminds you of Adam and Eve in the garden. Again, here is the Savior being treated as a sinner already. He is driven out. Out, the holy God said to the sinner. And out, the Spirit says to the beloved Son. Out into the wilderness. Be gone. He's there 40 days, it says. Surely, a symbolic reminder of the 40 years that Israel spent wandering in the wilderness in judgment for their lack of faith against God. They refused to enter the promised land. They were sent back into the wilderness to wander for 40 years. And this 40 days, surely a reminder of that time. Here he is in the wilderness where they would not cross the Jordan. Jesus goes away from the Jordan and wanders for 40 days in the wilderness. And notice, notice Mark's intentional description here. He was with the wild animals. Being tempted by Satan. The great accuser himself. No, no low-level demon for Jesus. Satan himself comes to tempt the Son of God. To seek to subvert his mission from the outset. To remove the title of sinless from the one who must be sinless to save us. To lure him away from this path of suffering and to invite him to a path of ease. To tempt him that since he is the beloved son, surely he can turn these stones into bread to satisfy his hunger. Surely he need not live in the wilderness since he is the mighty king. Surely he must not suffer the indignation of this kind of humiliation and suffering. If he is indeed the son of God, surely the son of God must not be in the wilderness, Satan says. So he tempts him. He tempts him to come out of the wilderness in little ways and in big ways. And Jesus says, no. He stays day after day after day after day. The beloved son stays. How many days in did happened that he began to question that voice he had heard, that that temptation came to his mind, the beloved son surrounded by roaring beasts in the wilderness, hungry and thirsty, beaten by the sun by day, cold at night. Must, must the son really suffer in this way? Must the son have nowhere to lay his head? Must the son, the creator of the universe, be homeless? Must the son have no roof? Must the son have no shade? Must the son be threatened at night by the fangs of beasts and the whisperings of the accuser? Must the beloved son face this wilderness day after day, week after week? Must he face this? Surely not, Jesus. Surely there is an easier path. Surely the mighty son does not deserve this. And Jesus says, no. I will stay to the end. I will stay to the end. It is important that we remember our doctrine of the person of Jesus Christ here. Remember, Jesus does not cease being God when he becomes incarnate. He remains God the Son with his full divine nature and takes on a human nature. And so what that means is that every day in the wilderness, God the Son is sustaining the suffering that his human nature is experiencing fully. Surely precious on day one. Surely more precious on day 40. Why was he in the wilderness? And why does Mark place this brief story at the outset? Mark wants us to understand that ultimately Jesus' exile in the wilderness will find a a final and ultimate horrific conclusion. 
In the wilderness, Jesus was surrounded by wild beasts, an interesting description that helps us to feel the terror, the horror of a lone man in a desert with wild animals around at night. How well can you sleep when something's roaring close to your head? The mighty lion makes himself a lamb, there seemingly for the slaughter. Why does Mark record this? Well, it is a picture of Jesus' ultimate mission and his ultimate place in the wilderness. This wilderness will see its final climax when Jesus is driven out again and placed on the cross. And Mark will remind us of that ultimate direction again and again through his gospel. Right at the outset, he wants us to be clear. The one driven out is the beloved son. Make no mistake about the preciousness and the value and the dignity and the glory of who this is. Surrounded by roaring beasts, tempted by the accuser and suffering again and again in the wilderness. Make no mistake, no ordinary man and yet suffering. And indeed, that will be the climactic moment for his mission. That is what this beloved son will do. That is how he will please the father. That is how he will identify with people. He will go to an ultimate wilderness on Calvary, driven out because of our sin. Think, for example, of Psalm 22, which Jesus quotes from the cross, and see if Mark chapter 1 verse 13 comes to mind. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I, I am poured out like water. And all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Listen, this moment in the wilderness is to point forward to the ultimate wilderness climax on the cross that Jesus will experience. It's Mark indicating, signaling to us that the beloved son did not come in the end to be loved, but to be driven out. Driven out of God's presence. Driven into the waiting claws of Satan himself. Driven into the desert of God's covenant curse. The beloved son came to suffer. The mighty lion made himself a lamb and put himself in the company of wolves determined to tear him to pieces. He was driven into the wilderness at the outset of his ministry because the wilderness was the ultimate purpose of his ministry. Is Christ precious to you in the wilderness? And especially the wilderness of the cross. Let the Lord Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, make eye contact with you this morning. Is he precious to you? Is he precious to you in the wilderness of the cross? He faced the wilderness of God's curse outside the garden of God's blessing against sinful people in our place. He was exiled from God's beautiful garden and sent away into the desert of his punishment for you and for me, for all those who believe in him. Why is Christ precious to us? Because though he succeeded against every temptation and gives us the record of that victory, he was punished as if he succumbed to every temptation. Consider, is that Christ precious to you? The very enemy he had conquered again and again would be given the freedom to incite a mob against him. The very father who was so pleased with him would treat him as an enemy, unworthy of any love or affection. We must see the worth of Christ in the wilderness and consider the wilderness, wilderness that is to come on the cross. He is 
He is embracing, he is responding to this wilderness incentive from the Spirit. He is facing Satan. He is enduring the wild animals. And we notice this delightful phrase, the angels were ministering to him. I think as a reminder that in his faithfulness through every trial and temptation, God sends angels to comfort him in his human weakness. I think there is a symbol there of God's God's watching of the faithfulness of the Son as he endures temptation in the wilderness. No one has ever resisted every temptation to the end except for Christ. And so no human knows what that feels like except for Christ. Brothers and sisters, is Christ in the wilderness, Christ on the cross, is he precious to you? Let the answer linger in your heart. Is he precious to you? Not just known about, precious to you. Loved by you. Have you considered how far from God you would be if Christ had not died in your place? Consider eternity surrounded by the raging of demons and Satan and the condemnation due to our sin. And yet here is God's son taking that rage for us. Consider the horror of death separated from God. Eternal wilderness with nothing but fear and condemnation to expect forever. Consider that that would be your future when you close your eyes in death if it were not for the Son facing that in your place. Consider. Consider that the the slightest health scare would be a terror because on the other side of that doctor's announcement is the voice of God sending you out into the desert of his wrath. Consider the terror of your beloved Christian friends and family when they close their eyes in death knowing there is nothing in their future but an eternity separated from God surrounded by evil beasts and the terror of his fury except that that one has claimed this Savior who suffered in their place. Is Christ precious to us in the wilderness. Oh, he should be, because without him, the wilderness is all we would look forward to. It is all we would know right now and forever. There would be nothing but being surrounded by evil beasts, hearing the groans and screams of Satan, and separated and cut off from God the Father. We would never hear the words from God, I love you. All things only work together for good. For us, because all things work together for the Son to go to the cross. The Lord would not be our shepherd if the shepherd had not laid down his life as a sheep. The Lord would be our judge. The Lord would be our condemner. He would be our creator that we have rejected. There would be no quiet streams for us if the shepherd had not gone into the wilderness and suffered thirst and hunger. There would no be, be no living bread for us if he had not felt the pangs of hunger and the suffering on the cross. There would be no peace like a river if the Lord Jesus Christ had not suffered under the wrath of his Father. It would not be well with our souls if it had not been him in that desert on the cross suffering the punishment of his Father. Surely, we must agree with the Father, beloved indeed, precious indeed. Seeing his worth in the wilderness, and especially the wilderness of the cross, should bring him closer to our hearts. But maybe, brothers and sisters, maybe even now there is some coldness in your heart. Be honest with yourself. Maybe even now, in spite of all that I've said, in spite of all that Mark has presented to us, there is some, some reluctance, some coldness in your heart, some 
some analytical affirmation that lacks affectionate worship in your heart. Maybe there is that in your heart. Why is that? Why is it that even now the Savior does not quite seem precious to us sometimes? Perhaps you remember or have heard the story or seen it of the Lord of the Rings and the great enemy Gollum, you know, that wicked creature. You know, that he, he takes the ring of power for himself and he calls it his precious, doesn't he? And as Tolkien describes it, this man who clung to this treasure all for himself, he descends into a, a cave of darkness and there he is for 500 years feeding on the idolatry of this ring, he forgets the feel of the sun and the taste of bread. Because the ring is all he craves. He loses everything else. Listen, we are all Gollum. Idolatry always works the same way. There is only space for one treasure in our heart. If we are clinging to something as our treasure, our chief delight and joy, then our heart has no room to treasure the Lord Jesus. So let me ask you, what are you holding on to that's keeping you away from this son? What are you holding on to? Do you want him to be precious? I believe you do. I believe I do. We desire that. But let's be honest with ourselves. We can't value Christ separate from letting go the other things we value. We can't value Christ temporarily and then go back to worshiping our little rings. The heart doesn't work that way. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. If Christ is not all to you, he is nothing to you. He will never go into partnership as a part savior of men. If he be something, he must be everything. And if he not be everything, he is nothing to you. So let's search out our hearts. Let's do some, some heart excavation right now. Let's search out our hearts. Where, where is your ring? Where's the ring you're holding on to you, keeping you in the cave of coldness and away from a full experience of delighting in the Son of God who went to the wilderness of the cross for you? What, what are you holding on to that is keeping your heart in the shade, chilly, of a full experience of love for the Lord Jesus? What are you holding on to? Search, search your heart. Search your heart right now. Is it perhaps, is it pride? Do you think much of yourself during the week? Be honest with yourself. Do you think much of yourself? Is your ring simply called me? Do you think much of how you look or how you appear or how people think about you? Or, or do you think of your position or your dignity? Or do you think of your reputation? Or do you think of your clothing? Or do you think of your, your status or your achievements or your work position or your retirement? Do you, do you think much of me? Is, is me a lot on your mind during the week? Listen, if, if me is on your mind all week long, then in the moment you want to feel the preciousness of Jesus, you will find there is nothing left to give him. Perhaps there's false treasures that we think about and look forward to and, and envy and desire and, and want and and even save for and look forward to. But, but down in our hearts, they've got a grip on us. We think we're holding them, but they are holding us. And then when we want to feel the preciousness and the delight of Jesus, we find our heart is crowded and we have forgotten the feel of the sun. Listen, you can't manufacture love for Jesus in the middle of a worship service if you're not daily treasuring Jesus in the everyday life that God has given you. You can't manufacture love for Jesus in a moment of devotional pursuit if you are not daily choosing to let go of those rings of power that have you in their grip. 
Listen, the worship of Jesus is, is not a, a isolated uh, experience on Sunday mornings and occasionally when we read our Bibles. It, it, it is not ours for the, the asking in a, a given individual moment. It is ours for the receiving as we cast aside every other treasure. Listen, think about your week. If your week is filled with grasping certain rings, you won't have anything left to feel the love of Jesus. There is no alternative here. My, my friends, there is no alternative. You cannot both love Jesus with all your heart and spend all of your life loving other things. So be honest with yourself. Where, where is the ring for you? Listen, God knows what it is. And God loves you still. He invites you to himself. He invites me to himself. He, he knows the address of the cave where I reside day in and day out, the cave called me or possessions or dignity or reputation or media or gluttony or selfishness. He, he knows the caves where I reside. He knows the names of the rings I cling to, where the preciousness is crowding out my soul. He invites us to lay it down. Only by daily laying down the other rings that cling to us, can we receive the love of the Lord Jesus that the Father by His Spirit wants to put in our hearts? Let me encourage you to make this passage the Christ who is baptized in humility, the voice of God, he is my beloved son. I am well pleased, immediately driven out into the wilderness. And the picture that is that he will ultimately reveal hanging on the cross, dying for sinners. Listen, brothers and sisters, let that be your focus this week. As you parent, as you do laundry, as you go from task to task at work, keep your eye on the glory of the Lord Jesus. Keep your eye on his glory. There is enough glory in him to shine light on every daily mundane task. So when you write emails, write them for him. And when you are folding laundry, fold it for him. And when you are seeing the sun outside, remember that he hangs it in the sky. And when you are caring for your child, remember that he brought you to the Father and caused you to be adopted. And when you are talking to your neighbor, remember that one day he reached out to you and brought you into his family. And when you are driving, remember that the Lord Jesus came from heaven to earth to save you. Look, there is enough glory in Christ to shine light on every mundane moment of our week so that whatever else we are doing, we are keeping our eyes fixed on him and if you are here and you know about Jesus but you're not sure you've ever believed in Jesus is this Christ not precious enough for you to receive him he offers himself to you the great God who humbled himself and walked in our place, condescended to be baptized on the path with sinners and ultimately went into the wilderness of God's judgment for our sin. Listen, this is the Christ that offers himself to you. If you are here and you are not a believer in Jesus, let me urge you to receive what he offers. Receive him as the savior of your soul, as the son of your darkened life, as the one who would be the treasure that you have been searching for, the one who is the joy for the joyless, the one who offers you rescue from God's judgment and peace, peace like a river in God's presence forever. Listen. If you are here and you are a guest, turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. He offers himself to you, the one who redeems sinners and rescues those who live in the cave of their own rebellion, separated from God. And he brings them into the light of God's presence with a smile of forgiveness on his face. Listen, if you are here as a guest and you don't know Jesus, know him and come to him. If you are a Christian, let me urge us, make your week about casting aside other treasures. And don't be surprised. You may think you're holding them, but in reality, they are holding you back and they don't want to go. 
What is it for you that must be cast out so that love of Christ can increase? Love of the wilderness Savior can increase. What must be cast out? John Owen says, on Christ's glory, I would fix all my thoughts and desires. And the more I see of the glory of Christ, the more the painted beauties of this world will wither in my eyes. And I will be more and more crucified to this world. It will become to me like something dead and putrid, impossible for me to enjoy. I would just add, impossible to enjoy apart from the enjoyment of Christ. You will never exhaust the glory of Jesus. There is more to see in him. There is more to love in him. He is the wilderness savior, the savior on the cross, the savior baptized on the road with sinners, the savior who suffered in our place, the beloved son banished for us. Charles Spurgeon says, Jesus Jesus is not a grain of gold, but a vast globe of it, a priceless mass of treasure such as heaven and earth cannot excel. Here in your own backyard, there is more treasure than heaven and earth can contain. May he Holy Spirit, I pray that you would do what you delight to do and glorify the Lord Jesus in our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would forgive me and all of us, Lord, for the many little rings of comfort and ease and selfishness and worldliness. Lord, they are just trinkets, plastic painted gold. Help us to cast them away. And instead, to gaze on you. I pray, Lord Jesus. I pray you would do this in every father's heart, every mother's heart, every young adult's heart, Lord, every child's heart here. Turn our eyes, Lord. Overwhelm our hearts. 